Welcome to Adaptify. I'm Mike, I'm a paraplegic from New Zealand, and it's my mission to find the Adaptifiers of the world. People who have overcome challenges and found new, creative, interesting ways to be free despite needing to use a wheelchair for their mobility. Today's guest is Helen Smith. Helen's an Australian who was awarded the Churchill Fellowship to explore wheelchair bushwalking globally. She's found several unique ways to go on outdoor adventures, multi-day outdoor adventures with minimal use of equipment. Helen is a real go-getter and it's going to be a pleasure speaking to her to find out all the details about how she's managed to once again find freedom in the outdoors. Helen, so glad you could join us. Welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks, Mike, for having me. It's super exciting to um, be here. It's um, yeah, such a privilege to be part of a really awesome crew of people and such a brilliant international community of people doing some really cool stuff. So thanks. Thanks so much. Well, you, you fit right in uh, through and through and adapt the fire. So whereabouts are you at the moment? I am sitting in our nation's capital here in Canberra. I um, moved in here Australia. early. In Australia, yeah. I moved here in, uh, in July to start a new job. So I am uh, in my share house in a little suburb called Ainsley, which is kind of in the, on the northern, northern side of, of the city. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a fairly sort of overcast day. We've had a bit of rain recently, which has been really good. And, yeah, just been out for a paddle this morning. So kind of, yeah, making the most of, of the kind of outdoor environment here and, and the water, of course. So what would people describe you uh, as? How, how would people describe your, your personality and your interests? Hmm. Good question. Um, I think people have often described me as a very annoyingly positive person. <laughs> one, one of those people who kind of will always feel like, ah, it's just around the corner. I'm sure it won't take that much longer to get there. And, you know, five hours later, we finally get there. Um, yeah, I think for, for, for whatever reason, I sort of have a fairly optimistic perhaps you'd call it naive way of looking at life and um that's probably one of the the main characteristics that sort of I think really kind of helped shape my my way of looking at the world particularly in the last year so I also imagine that that sort of positive outlook and this is something that I've noticed is a shared uh, trait with all the adaptifiers I've interviewed so far it's something that will help when, you know, the shit hits the fan, so to speak. Can you just share with our audience how uh, how you ended up spending your life uh, in this adaptive community and, and using a wheelchair yeah, as a paraplegic? Yeah, sure. Um, so my story starts just, just a little under four years ago at the start of 2015. I was finishing up my... PhD at Sydney University, and I was studying um, ecology and, in particular, rodent ecology. I was part of a, a um, reintroduction program where we were bringing back native rats into um, a part of um, a part of Sydney. Um, and 
very much kind of the shape of my um, my my PhD life, which was really sort of four years prior to, to 2015, was kind of doing a lot of field work during during the week. I was I was out most days setting up monitoring sites, trapping, assessing, collecting data. Um, and on my weekends, I was organising and running trips for my um, bushwalking club, which was Sydney Uni um, Bushwalkers. So kind of my life was very much in that outdoor world, both professionally and um, in my personal time as well. And I sort of was, I guess my headspace was constantly kind of planning the next adventure, be that, you know, canyoning trip or a bushwalking trip or a kayaking trip or an overseas trip that would inevitably involve spending lots of time outdoors. Um, but I also saw myself professionally very much moving into the wildlife monitoring space and wildlife management space. And um, kind of my PhD was, for me, a bit of a training ground to get all of those skills that would enable me to get a job working. I wanted to work in uh, remote parts of, of Australia and and really kind of, yeah, be immersed in, in that, that lifestyle. Two days after handing in my PhD, I was on a canyoning trip that I'd organised to celebrate and I was doing a routine exit out of a canyon and combination of making a bad call, bad luck, whatever the sort of, however the stars aligned that day, um, a rock that I was that I was relying on um, gave way and I fell, fell quite a significant distance. I'm told it was up to 12 metres. And So were you uh, abseiling or were you? No, we were no. climbing out. So there was no ropes involved, but it wouldn't be something you would typically use rope on. It would be something you would typically, you would typically exit without, without rope as we were, um, yeah, as we were making our way up and just, relied on something that that didn't hold and I felt 12 meters that's a long way so 30 40 foot so I'm told so I'm told I I don't remember the I don't remember the incident but I do remember waking up and not feeling my legs and going "Hmm, that's not good um but in in that fall I broke my back in three places and punctured a lung um the friends I was with on the trip set off a personal locator beacon. Mm. Actually, we had two in the group. So the tricky thing with personal locator beacons within the canyoning environment is that you don't necessarily get a direct line of sight to the sky. And so it's a tricky thing of, yes, you want to set it off as close to the accident site, but you also need to get up high enough to be able to to set it off. So because we had two, we were able to set one off immediately where I was not knowing if that was gonna um, if that was gonna take and then set one off much um, at, at a higher piece of ground. And we set we waited. Um, and uh, that to me that time I don't really kind of have a sense of how long we were there for. Um, I think it turned out to be about two hours. But it wasn't clear whether we'd be there for 
well, the thing is you don't know if it's been picked up, the signal, for one thing. Um, the second thing is you don't know if you need to sort of put a contingency plan in place, which is you send out a you know, a, a group out by, by, by foot to raise the alarm. And then, of course, you kind of need someone to stay as well. And then, you know, the clock's kind of ticking. So there's sort of, there's, there's sort of a lot of, there was a lot of things going on. Um, but we, yeah, we were, yeah, relieved to hear the helicopter fly overhead. And with, um, you know, those guys are amazing. The, um, the, um, rescue helicopter crews, rescue helicopter crews, they deployed paramedics that came down and, you know, just, Amazing guys, just really, just fantastic. And they put me onto a, a stretcher and lifted me up into a helicopter, and I got taken off to a refueling point, and then onto Royal uh, North Shore Hospital in Sydney, where I underwent sort of um, surgery fairly quickly to put rods into my back, and then. Um, from, from there I was in hospital for six weeks and then rehab for, for another three months. So that was my celebration for handing in my PhD, which is not really how you plan to <laughs> finish these things, but you did know. You it, did it with a bang, literally, right? I did it with a bang. What, what more could you want? <laughs> so I've, I've heard a number of people say, and, and I've experienced it too, that while you're in hospital, you're pretty well supported. It's when you leave that the real learning and the real challenge begins. Would you agree with that? And if if so, did you find a time when you were focused more on, you know, more on what you couldn't do? Uh, you said you're optimistic, but surely there were some times where you're really struggling. And I'm, I'm I ask you that because I'm interested to know how you made it through those times and uh, and what what knowledge you could share others listening um, to yeah. help them get through time. Maybe they're listening now and, and they're, they're going through this, this period where you, you don't, don't feel supported and you are feeling scared and alone. What, what could you, um, what advice could you give? What was your experience? Yeah, I think, I think there's a few things in there to unpack. For me, the, the sort of first, you know, very quickly I was told by a, um, by, by my doctor that I wouldn't walk again. And I, 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 like, on one kind of logical level, I understood that absolutely. And the people around me were also, you know, my immediate family, they were also told that and they understood that. But the, the thing is, though, that that's sometimes, in some cases, that's wrong. And, and I guess my super optimistic brain kind of gave myself that six week initial period of that that's the time frame that I was told well sometimes rec some recovery can come back within that first six weeks and so really kind of for, for whatever reason for me like that first six weeks I was still in this kind of I didn't identify myself as being yet in that I will never walk again space there was still this sense of oh that might that that still might be me that the one that yep. you know gets this super lucky breakthrough and and I just kind of hadn't quite made that kind of connection until that six week mark and so 
for me, that kind of six-week mark was probably harder than hearing it the first time because the kind of hope was no longer there, yeah. if that makes sense. That also coincided immediately around about the time with when I moved from the intensive hospital environment to rehab. So, you know, I guess in some ways sort of having a bit of a a shake-up and a change was, you know, was good at that period in time. But I guess sort of, and, and then, you know, going through rehab, you're sort of, you're fairly sort of focused on getting the basics down so you can leave. I think... I, I do agree with that. What, yeah, how you set up the question by saying that, yeah, there is that kind of period when you leave where you've sort of gone from this environment where you're just like everyone else in some some loose sense. I mean, in many ways, you're not like anyone else at rehab because you have nothing else in common other than the fact that you have ended up there by an accident. Um, but you still have a shared kind of still know what it means to get up and be in rehab and then you move back into the community and you know and there's just nothing in common with anyone that you're surrounded with anymore it's very sort of you feel quite I guess disconnected um and it's you know I don't know what it was like when you were in rehab but I mean conversations around the kind of dinner table were very sort of frank and fearless around body <laughs> functions and, yeah. Bow and things better. that weren't working. <laughs> and, you know, that's just not conversations you can have with normal, like in back in the kind of normal outside world again. So you kind of are, you know, it's sort of, yeah, you're suddenly quite isolated in that, in that period. But I think really for me, like, you know, aside from all that, the thing that I found hardest to kind of adjust to in that first period was not having fun stuff planned on the weekend because I guess kind of where I'd, how I'd kind of lived. And I mean, it was a pretty, pretty nice lifestyle. I mean, doing a PhD, you're getting to study exactly what you like and you get, you know, you're getting a scholarship to do it. It's a really, like, it is a, and like there is no other time in your life where you can study exactly what you want without your boss telling you what to do. You know, that's a really privileged position to be in. And I was having fun on the weekends going away <laughs> on all these great trips with zero responsibility as well. So I had this really kind of very, very carefree existence and kind of, you know, was able to plan so much fun stuff. And then to kind of not be able to plan fun things on the weekend and and I think like the not being able to plan was kind of like just not really even having kind of really a very concrete kind of starting point knowing how to get to that point of feeling outdoors and free I mean yes you could do short 100 meter long bushwalks but that sense of being outdoors and really into that kind of wilderness, like that was a feeling that I I really thought I would never have that again. And so kind of for almost like that first, I think the first, really the first kind of two years post-injury has been this enormous kind of grieving process in many ways, like grieving a loss of a person or a lifestyle and really kind of 
um, you know, kind of that really, I think it it's different to saying, oh, someone has depression. Like that's not the right word for it. It's, it's like a deep sadness that is around that grief. It's not, mm. it, there is a really clear, like for me at least, there was a really clear kind of link to to that and you know being able to start doing stuff again in the outdoors and have that narrative that was my that kind of was connect reconnecting with my previous identity that kind of has been like a massive change in a way to kind of yeah like lift that yeah lift sort of beyond that um I think in terms of kind of how I Got yourself got out of it. Through that, yeah. I mean, I don't. I think this kind of really shows that I'm still, still pretty new to all this stuff, and still, like, I, I really feel if I'd been asked that question about a year ago, I would have gone, I don't really, I don't really know. But I, I suppose I'm now kind of starting to be able to look from a little bit of a bigger perspective, and and, and can kind of look back on it. I think the the. The key thing that I did on those, because those weekends where my friends were going out and they were doing fun stuff and I couldn't go, they were going canyoning, they were going camping, they were going into these wilderness places, and and I just simply couldn't couldn't go and join them, and that was really, really, really hard. I think the thing that I that I made myself do was made myself do something active, and for me, kind of. For whatever reason, I've always found, like, for my whole life, I've always found swimming a really kind of quite a meditative thing. Um, and swimming is something that allows my brain to kind of settle. And, I mean, swimming is still, there's still a few kind of processes that to go through. If you're paraplegic, you've got to, you know, think about getting into swimmers and, you know, for female swimming. swimming costumes are not the easiest things, but you know you can get into one, and, and you've got to think about transferring out of your chair, and you've got to you know be careful about your skin. And so there's actually a few kind of processes you've got to go through in order to get into the pool. And sometimes I just like just by forcing myself to just go through the the that routine of getting to the pool, and even if it meant I only swam two lengths, like mm. normally I could swim. Way more than that, but 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 the goal was well. Even if you only swim that and go through the process, you're kind of setting your routine, and, and it means that next time you're going to be one step better at doing that process. You're going to find it just that little bit easier because you know how it all works. You know, how it's and I just think that kind of that routine, like just forcing a routine, even if you felt really shit, was kind of the thing that was able to get me through it. That's so cool. And so, just on the swimming front, do you what do you wear on your feet when you're swimming? Um, so swimming was kind of the first thing that I got into in rehab because it was sort of the fundamental baseline for all of the other things I wanted to do. Because you have to learn all these kind of core things, like working out what your skin does, what to wear, how to do a floor to chair transfer, and that kind of has grounded me really well for doing other things like kayaking but even like going camping because you're much more confident with managing all of that stuff when I started I was advised to use booties on my feet I was advised to use an enormous amount of gear and actually that was something that I found really quite hard when I first 
because I'm not a gear person. In fact, I think like that's why I was so attracted to bushwalking in the first place was I loved that feeling of having a light pack with limited stuff and just having very little reliance on equipment and moving into kind of the world of paraplegia and spinal cord injury, you're heavily reliant on equipment and an awful lot of it. And that was particularly kind of the narrative around learning how to swim. You know, the first time you kind of go to the pool, it's like you take everything, you take, you know, a yoga mat and you take, you know, it's enormous amount of stuff. And that's because you just don't really know what'll, what'll work. Um, I started off using booties, but now if I go to a, if I go just go to a standard swimming pool, I've got my equipment down to bare minimum. I am almost back to what I would take prior to using a wheelchair, with the exception of I use hand paddles to just give you more well, power, more more yeah, of a workout, um, and a bit more of a workout in my upper body. But I could easily not not use them, so I'm. I could literally be back now to swimmer's goggle and a, and a towel. But when I when I started off, I took, you know, yoga mat, booties, wetsuit. Like it was absurd. It was absurd. Um, but but it, and, and that's taken time. But I think that that's been kind of one of the key sort of things for, for me getting a lot more also enjoyment out of these outdoor activities. It's just like, yes, yes, you do have to start with all of that extra stuff and then like the beauty of being able to just get it down to smaller and smaller and lighter and lighter stuff because when you have less gear less to carry less to worry about it's so much more freeing i think i like it yeah definitely i think back to some of my early expedition days mountaineering before my accident and actually the first trip i went to uh, i took an enormous amount of gear with me you know just phenomenal amounts it was such a pain carrying that on buses yeah. in, in South America with all this gear and uh, I ended up not needing half of it and uh, and so I think yeah. it's one of those things that with experience you can uh, you can whittle it down to the bare essentials you figure it out on your own but like you said you know you've got to actually start and go through that process to begin that journey right so um, yeah. you know that's that's so good it's good really good advice so uh, you know, from from swimming, you mentioned kayaking. One of the things I've been impressed since I uh, first uh, got chatting with you was, um, you know, you have managed to get back into the outdoors. Can you uh, talk to our listeners about some of the adventures you've had had to date, and um, and maybe elaborate a little bit on um, how you've managed to make those possible? Yeah, I think. All right, I'll start with the I'll start with the bushwalking side of things and then I'll 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 move into the kayaking stuff because I think the, the bushwalking is a really good example of kind of how how you never reach a you can't expect to reach the perfect solution on on day one and and it's been this kind of iterative journey so I think and and I guess bushwalking for me has kind of always been my kind of number number one passion I so when I First was in in rehab. I you know got chatting to people about kind of my interest and what I wanted to get back into, and the kind of I I felt you know pretty optimistic that there was actually quite a lot of options out there. People said there's stuff for people to do in chairs. It's really you know it's great. 
go to um, this website and you'll be able to find a list of all the of all the bushwalks. So I went to the um, website that they were talking about and had a look through and I realised very quickly that what wheelchair bushwalking means in a kind of in I guess the, the yeah, like for the general public, what it means is these very, very short, flat, smooth, mm. overly concreted tracks that are often incredibly short and they maybe go to a lookout. So you'd be looking at tracks that are sort of in the order of 50 to 100 metres long that take kind of less than five minutes to complete and will take you longer to drive there and longer to get out of the car than, than get along these walks. And And the thing that's sort of so bizarre when you do these tracks is you feel – you feel so disconnected to the environment that you're in. You're you're going along these concrete highways that are so prescribed that there's, you have absolutely no chance of seeing any wildlife or even feeling kind of any sort of connection. So I I kind of got chatting to a, a few people that work in 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 this area, and what emerged really quickly is that the way that in Australia at least we have defined wheelchair accessible bushwalking is that they must meet a particular standard that is set in an that is defined by how we see the urban environment and so by that I mean that we've kind of said okay in an urban environment it makes sense in a built environment that we can dictate how the slope should be and mm. there should be no steps and it should be flat and all of this stuff but the problem with kind of taking that concept and plonking it into the bush, well, the reality is the bush doesn't work on right angles and it's generally not flat and you're probably not going to have a perfect kind of experience. But the way that kind of we've solved it, in the past at least, is to just go through in concrete over all those problems, so to speak. Mm. And that's how we've ended up with these really kind of overly engineered bushwalking tracks. and. The, this this was kind of something that, yeah, I guess like really, really surprised me because I had a sense of what equipment was out there and I guess I kind of knew that there'd be other options, but it just really surprised me that that hadn't really been explored yet. So kind of what I started doing was kind of asking around about various bits of it adaptive equipment that might work to be able to go on other types of trails. And one of the things that works really well in kind of, you know, parts of Australia are making use of fire trails, which are these management trails that you'll often find in um, national parks. And so the reason that they're not classified as a, as a wheelchair accessible walk, even if a wheelchair can get along them, is that they're often not made of concrete. They're often sort of more of a kind of sandstony um, dirt track. Um, they might be longer than five kilometres, so that's the other crazy thing about the um, wheelchair standards that we have in terms of bushwalking tracks is that we put a length on on tracks, uh, yeah, on how long a track should be, um, which is you know kind of crazy because it essentially sort of restricts all of the options that you can have for you know um, someone in a chair getting getting out and doing things. And so that was kind of the next stage of the journey was sort of going, ah, well, what kind of tracks are possible to do? And I started to, you know, explore a few more options and looked at being able to carry my gear in a way that I could start to take 
enough gear to do overnight trips as well. And I was starting to, you know, build up a bit more of a repertoire for how to, you know, tackle and navigate, you know, this kind of terrain. But ultimately there was always kind of a, the thing that was kind of stopping me was this kind of mental space that I was in that said, I've got to be able to do this all by myself. So I was like really focused on, I've got to be able to push myself. I don't want to accept help from other people. Mm-hmm. And so when I was out bushwalking with a group or doing something in, with other people, I'd be so focused on, I want to do it, no help, no help, that it would actually turn into really quite an antisocial sort of experience because I'd be, you know, logging myself trying to get up a hill whilst everyone else is kind of unsure about how to engage with the whole thing. And it was this really kind of like almost revolutionary breakthrough, and I know that sounds crazy, about a year ago where I suddenly kind of got my head around this idea of, well, can I rope bushwalkers up to the front of my chair and can I can I still have control over what I'm doing? I'm still pushing myself. I'm still able to, you know, participate in this. But if I can get a little bit of extra oomph from those other people in the group by getting them to rope up, and that means that they're walking exactly the same as they normally would. They're not having to change anything about what they're doing. And suddenly bushwalking turns into this real kind of team activity and that has just completely changed what I've been able to do this year. Like that kind of thing of letting go of this sense of I need to do 100% of it by myself to mm-hmm. I want to do 90% of it by myself and if I need 10% of assistance, then actually that's going to allow me to be able to do 200% more stuff. Um, so we've done some really cool trips this year. Um one of my favorite was kind of combining bushwalking with pack rafting. So we did a circuit down in Kangaroo Valley, which is about probably two hours drive sort of southwest of Sydney, where we started off and did a, a sort of two-day bushwalk and then connected up the loop by um, swimming two kilometers down a river. And I've got this fantastic photo of my pack raft which is a $30 Kmart raft it's not a proper <laughs> pack raft with my chair loaded onto it and um you know it's middle of summer so beautiful weather and you know it's a great example of kind of you know hey with using the the landscape using the water where we need to 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 sort of connect up some of these fire trail tracks making use of that team spirit and and, and roping up people to my chair, um, I was able to kind of, you know, do something. There's no way I would have been able to do that on my own, but actually it was so much fun to do it as a group. So I think, you know, wow. even a year and a half ago, that idea of relying on other people, I don't know if I was quite there. So for me, it's definitely been this like process of like learning about what tracks are out there like seeing how limited and restricted it is if you follow the rules i.e just go by what they say a wheelchair accessible walk should be to looking at what other options are there then to kind of saying well i can't do it on my own but how can i involve other people and how can we just make use of really simple equipment like ropes to actually make this possible so we've called it huskying 
the idea of roping up huskies to my chair. <laughs> and um, it's a really kind of neat way of involving people. And um, I now that I've moved down to Canberra, I don't quite have the network that I had up in Sydney, um, but I'm starting to reach out and connect with other bushwalking groups down here and the um, Australian National University Mountaineering Club they um, they seem pretty excited to get involved with this stuff. So I'm heading out with them tomorrow to do a bit of a training with them. We're going to rope a few people up to my chair and see see how it all goes. So it's kind of, you know, starting to explore not only how do you kind of involve people that, you know, you're really close friends and you trust, they're sort of saying, well, how can I, you know, I'm someone new, we've got to kind of, think about, you know, broadening my networks and, you know, connecting up with other people and, and making sure that it's just a fun thing for, for everyone. So that's kind of well, where I'm up with the bushwalking stuff. Helen, how – so so you – I've seen photos. You, you use a freewheel or some sort of, uh, mm. you know, wheel that attaches to the front of your wheelchair to give you more off-road capability. And yep. then have you designed some sort of harness system or how um, – how does the rope setup work? And yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. It's super simple. Um, so I'm using um, canyoning tape or climbing tape. Um, I use a, a free wheel and basically I use a short sling from the front of the free wheel um, and then put a carabiner at the end of that sling and then connect up a big set of um, climbing tape probably I'd say sort of maybe seven or eight meters of that in a a loop that moves through that carabiner nicely Mm -hmm. and that means that two people can step in and put that climbing tape around their waist and clip it into their waistband of their backpack Mm -hmm. and then they can just walk normally they don't need to be pulling or doing anything different so they're walking normally and that's much more sustainable for someone that's trying to provide assistance. So if you could imagine someone leaning over trying to push a wheelchair for any extended period of time mm-hmm. with a backpack, it's really not good. It's also, you know, it's it's not a nice you don't you don't get a sense of sort of independence, but with this harness setup, it means that everyone's kind of walking in a natural setup as they would do as a group. Um, and it means that no one's having to put in like a lot of extra energy at any one point so it's really sustainable so this works really well if you're doing kind of you know several hours of um walking um it also means that i can easily load up um my chair with with extra gear so um a little bit just tell you a little bit about my setup generally i have my chair um set up so that it's very very untippy the reason is so that i can load my backpack straight onto the back of my chair and I can easily carry oh seven or eight kilos in that backpack without you know my chair flipping backwards Mm. so simply by moving that axle it means that uh that uh that I can you know easily carry all of my overnight gear so you know I typically in my backpack it's a 35 40 liter backpack and I could carry a, a small fly ground sheet um, sleeping bag, sleeping mat, bit of food, um, yeah, first aid kit, Billy or Jaffaline, depending on what we're doing, clothes. Yeah, easily can carry enough gear for, for two to three nights. And then I also have an under 
not sure quite, is it under cargo net? That maybe is the right right word for it. Mm. So the net that you see people sometimes have underneath their chair, mm. that's really great for being able to carry water. So, um, so you know, gravity, right? Yeah, and it means that you're not got all of that weight on your back as mm. well. Um, so, you know, often because we're walking in reasonably hot conditions, sometimes without easily being able to collect water, if we have to carry enough water for, um, say, two days at a time during winter, you'd, you'd want to be carrying kind of five, six litres. Over summer, you might need even as much as sort of three litres a day. So being able to carry um, water in a – I have a Cedar Summit bladder, um, just essentially a big goon sack that um, that sits underneath the um, – in my chair, and, and that's a – a really neat way of being able to carry things. Um, I also generally keep my repair kit tools under my chair as well um, because they can be a bit bit heavy, all the Allen keys and tubes and, and that kind of thing. Just yeah. to repairs to your chair if you need to. I mean, that's something you've really got to think about. If you you get a flatty, then you're two days out. You've really, um, you've really got to go prepared, right? Yeah. So I use a... Um, I guess sort of what you might use if you're a cyclist. So I've just got a little um, repair kit that's got um, some spare tubes, so for my chair as well as a spare tube for the freewheel and um, Allen keys for um, being able to do minor repairs. Um, just, uh, I mean, the freewheel's a reasonably common piece of equipment, I'm guessing. So one of the things that um, I found out quite recently that's worth knowing is that the freewheel to change the, the the tube within the freewheel? You actually have to undo the middle axle of the of the freewheel itself. It's not a quick release. So basically, you've got to be out there with kind of Allen keys taking out the sort of central mm. part of the the wheel, which is not great. You think about it if it's kind of you know raining or you're out somewhere, you don't want to be dropping kind of parts. So what I've actually done with my freewheel is I went to my local bike shop and just asked if they could refit the central axle with a quick release mechanism on my freewheel. So that means that if I'm out and I get a flat, bang, quick release, I can then do the change without kind of having to faff around with Allen keys and just mm. stuff dropping about. And that's, for me, I just, I don't have an, I don't feel enormously confident with tinkering and that mechanical side of things, so I want to make it as as simple as possible, and I want to not have moving parts when I'm, yeah, I don't want to have stuff fall. I don't want to lose things when I'm out there, basically. Um, the other hack that I think is really good for a freewheel, I haven't done this, but I plan to do it, is um, to use, oh, my goodness, I've gone a mental blank. So what's the... You know, you can put on nuts and bolts like a type of glue. That, oh, Loctite? Uh, Loctite, mm. yes. So the issue I have with my freewheel is that kind of when it goes over sort of rough terrain, the, the screws kind of mm. get loose. Yep. So, yeah, using Loctite, something that's also pretty pretty helpful from, from what I've been told. So I'm going to look into that. Awesome. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I think I did the same because, yeah, on my freewheel, I had them coming loose and then, then the release lever would jam and you you couldn't release it or, you know, 
Mm. Things. Hey, so tell us a little bit about the Churchill Fellowship because that uh, that sort of follows on from your bushwalking uh, experience and and love. And and tell us a little bit about where that took you. Yeah, sure. So a little bit about the Churchill Trust. Basically, that is an organisation that offers um, scholarships for people within the community to go overseas and explore or research an idea that they're passionate about. Um, so it's um, one of those programs where in Australia they offer, I think, somewhere between somewhere around 50 scholarships each year and people might go and, um, you know, explore, you know, a particular thing that they're studying or maybe they're looking at kind of women's health or anything that they've got sort of something of particular interest. I found out about the applications, you know, the day before and went, hmm, I wonder if there's something in here about, you know, bushwalking and exploring kind of what people are doing overseas. And so I threw in an application and I was so privileged to be chosen to to do that. Basically, it was my first big overseas trip using using a chair. So it was something that I um yeah kind of was yeah I guess a little little nervous about doing in the sense that I was sort of traveling on my own and and not entirely sure what that was going to mean but you know looking back on it now it's a fantastic kind of starting point to be able to build a lot of confidence because when you travel you have to think about going lightweight and really minimizing that equipment that you need so for me I went to Canada, the US, UK, Finland, Germany, and Switzerland. Um, and the idea of the Churchill Fellowship was to connect with people over there that are doing some cool stuff in the um, outdoor space and bring those ideas back to uh, uh, to Australia and implement them into programs. So that was, um, I guess, one of the... Yeah, it, it was it was building on um, work that I did in my previous job um, with the National Parks Association on on a program called Naturally Accessible, um, which was about taking a really broad look at how we describe bushwalking tracks and trails um, in New South Wales and you know in general across Australia, and looking at ways to be able to provide people with information that they'd need to make a decision about whether that track was suitable for them. You know, for instance, someone in a wheelchair, they might find it quite useful to know if it's two steps mm. down to a beautiful lookout or if it's 200 steps. You know, if it's two steps, maybe you can navigate that. If it's 200, maybe you're going to give it a give it a miss. But mm. this sort of idea of telling someone, oh, you know, wheelchair accessible bushwalk has to be this short 50 to 100 metre track is it's kind of crazy when we can tell people exactly what's there and allow them to, to make a choice. So it's about exploring that kind of notion and testing it with other places around the world. Um, I guess the way that I, I traveled, I, I kind of look at it as a reasonably conservative approach to travel compared to, you know, previous Helen where I would have just kind of stuck my backpack on and, and off I went. And I mean that in the sense that I was pretty organised to, well, I organised myself to be able to hire a car at each airport that I landed into and that meant that I could 
stick my gear in the back of the car and I could mm. drive to where I needed to go. So I didn't end up doing overnight bushwalking trips, but I did a fair bit of car camping and um, sort of traveling in, in that way. And the Churchill travel, that was, I was still kind of in, when did I do it? I did 2017. So I was still in that sort of two to it wasn't even the two and a half year mark since my accident. So I was still kind of working out how a lot of the kind of basics work, everything from kind of, you know, how does a, how does this car's hand control work? Cause it's, you know, different to what I've been used to, to using. Um, but I think, you know, I really felt from, from that travel from actually, you know, and the other thing to say was all of those countries were fairly kind of, relatively straightforward countries to travel in they all spoke english except finland and germany obviously but you know it wasn't kind of you know it was a very good starting point for me to just really nail some of those basics of traveling and and that's sort of been a really great springboard for doing some more things um uh in, including this year um traveling over to spain where i did a section of the camino trail with another friend of mine who use the chair. So wow. that was a, a really awesome trip. It was a 250-kilometre push from Porto in the south part of um, – sorry, in sort of the middle part of Portugal and pushing up to um, Santiago in Spain. Um, and we were doing that trip. Um, you know, I think, I think being, having kind of done the more sort of conservative travel in that sort of – but in that two to in the sort of two and a half year mark of my injury, I got down the basics of travel and what I wanted to do, and then that led to the Camino trip, which you know was having to you know do things you know uh, having to carry even lighter gear, and we were sort of pushing sort of around twenty k's each day and staying in youth hostels along the way, and you know it's that European walking, so it's not wilderness, but I feel like each of these kind of yearly trips is kind of is getting me closer where I want to go to, which is doing a wilderness expedition at some point, like a really like an extended period of time in the bush, either by water or um, by chair. And that's Mike, my friend, you are going to get an invite on because I think it would be an epic. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> you teach me a few things about that i i uh i've still got lots to learn in that in that department especially about going lightweight and and uh doing doing without all the all the bits of equipment um but no, i'd love to that sounds sounds fabulous so yeah um when when i first met you a couple of years ago you were doing a kayaking course to learn mm. whitewater kayak uh well or what was it actually to learn whitewater kayak from from scratch or had you done some whitewater kayaking before yeah. so I, I had done some whitewater before then and and I should sort of preface it with saying that I'm absolutely not was not an expert whitewater kayaker I was very very much a learner kind of comfortable-ish in kind of grade two to three but like very happy to portage anything more extreme than that um uh, but but I could roll and I could, you know, and I enjoyed those trips. But it was definitely like it, it was more of a side passion. I, like the bushwalking side of things for me was, was the major one. But I had been to 
New Zealand in the past, been to Murchison to do a kayaking course with the um, New Zealand Kayak School, and they are absolutely just just tops people there. I mean, they are so on the ball with technique, teaching, just really good paddling skills and safety, and it kind of had, I, I guess the... When I when I was thinking about you know should I go back and do another kayaking course with with them and, and I sort of thought you know what if anyone's going to be able to figure out how I can roll a kayak it's going to be the New Zealand kayak school guys and to be honest like looking back on it now I did that fairly early on in my yeah um, injury been... I think it would have been maybe a year and a half in or. Gosh, can't think. Would it have been 2000? It probably was around about the year mark. So it was very much kind of just throwing myself into a bunch of different scenarios and seeing which stuck, you know. And I, I think, like, uh, at that stage, you know, I hadn't figured out a lot of the bushwalking stuff. I was maybe wondering if the kayaking was something that might take. I mean, it's that thing of trying a bunch of different things to work out exactly where things are going to going to fly mm. um and yeah so i did i did a four-day course with with those guys we and and i got back on on the water again so it was really it was really great it kind of built up a lot of confidence in you know being able to say hey i can get back in a kayak and i can you know tackle a river um the thing that i i guess and i don't know whether it's sort of it's this really tricky thing. I'm I'm a, a T10 complete um, injury, and that means that I've got um, a four. I, I guess I've got core down to around about my my belly button. What was that? A four pack instead of a. Oh, six that pack. one. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> and then a keg below. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it, and and it's this really tricky thing of kind of you know I I. I think there's, there's, I feel like being T10, you're kind of, you're not quite a T12, mm. but you feel like you should be able to do what T12s do. I don't know if you've had this sense. And I know T12s that are able to roll kayaks. And so it's kind of got this idea in my head of, I should be able to roll a boat. I should be able to make, and, you know, I worked really hard for these four days. Should be able to roll it. Should be able to roll it. And, by the end of that course, when I couldn't roll the boat, kind of went, ah, oh, is this is this actually a reality? And do I need to be able to roll a boat to be able to go whitewater kayaking again? It was this really sort of interesting journey of kind of saying, well, what is it that I want to get out of kayaking? Yeah, to be able to do mental stuff, you definitely need to roll. You need to be so on the ball. Mm. Is that what I want to do? I'm not sure I really want to do that. You know, what do I enjoy about kayaking? Being on the river, being on the river for a long time and camping and spending time out, you know, is it really the right thing to be like smashing myself to be able to get this role? Um, mm. Maybe it's just not something that I physically actually am going to be able to do in that particular boat. But do you know what, actually, um, and I forget the gentleman's name that you interviewed a few podcasts back, the wave ski dude. Oh, Philippe. He, T11 and can roll, yeah. if I understood correctly. You sure can, yeah. Yeah, which kind of went, mm, maybe maybe, maybe I gave up too soon. So I feel like for me the, the there's, there's definitely a little bit of like, yeah, um, if, I, if I 
bash myself over the head for not getting the role. And, you know, maybe I could if I spent, you know, 100 days in a pool going mm-hmm. over the, the works. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like ultimately is that what I really want or is it, you know, just to get back out on the water again? And, and I think that's always going to be a little bit of a dilemma here. It's like do you want to get out there or do you want to get the technique kind of perfect and how you find that, mm-hmm. you know, middle ground. You've got to be safe but, um, you know, like – Where's the actual enjoyment? So I, th- I think for me, the kayaking, I haven't quite found the right things yet. I've, I've sort of, to be honest, I've kind of put the whitewater stuff a little bit on hold, like recognizing that I really love the the using the kayaking as a way to explore national parks and like to go camping. So I guess sort of kind of, you know, put the whitewater stuff a little bit on ice and, and kind of started to do yeah, use use the kayaking as more of a of a camping thing. Um, but but something I've started to do more recently, um, and I've got into it whilst being down here in Canberra is um, outrigger paddling. So the outrigger canoes are, are the um, traditional boat that um, I believe sort of Polynesian cultures use to to first sort of travel over um, over large kind of ocean distances. Um, and these boats generally have sick well can have single craft but you can also have teams of six people um and the thing that i've really loved about joining the outrigger kind of side of it is firstly the the sort of cultural side of things is really really interesting like when they do like they do they refer to like parts of the boat using traditional language which is really kind of interesting um the second part is it's this real sense of kind of teamwork um so it's that I guess that sort of, again, feeds into the narrative of my, my bushwalking experience where I've kind of, you know, moved more into a team kind of setting. The same thing with my paddling. I've got a lot more enjoyment by being in a boat with a team because, well, I'm exactly the same as everyone else in that boat in the sense that no one can lift that boat by themselves into the water, but once they're in the water, we all work together and get somewhere. And I really like that kind of narrative and, yeah, way of kind of fitting yeah, my sort of myself into the into the team. Um, yeah. Hey, so I imagine that when you were thinking about joining the uh, the Outrigger Canoe uh, Club, I think we call it Waka Ama here in New Zealand. Um, oh, cool. It's a Maori term uh, for exactly the same thing, uh, and also for the huskying, you know, for the uh, assisted bushwalking. How do you? How do you sort of overcome that fear that people are not going to want to help you? And and how do you broach the subject with people? Like, you know, this is something new. No one's, you know, the, particularly the huskying, that no one's really even thought of or heard of before in the adaptive world. Um, how do you how do you manage to to um, to find buy in for that? What what do you say to these groups to um, to to convince them that um, that they should come and basically um you know give give you a hand and and join in this uh, this adventure yeah it's it's a good question um and it's kind of one that has taken me a little bit of time to work out um it's about choosing the right type of person i think um and by that i kind of mean okay i'm gonna like i'm gonna put down some really probably awful stereotypes of outdoor people, but here goes. So you've got kind of the solo outdoorsy person that wants to climb the highest mountain and their mountain is bigger than your mountain and they'll want to do their thing. Mm -hmm. And they're very independent kind of person that just gets annoyed by, 
by doing group things. And then you kind of, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got someone that's an enormously sort of social bushwalker that would just not care if you went 100 metres into a campsite as long as they're there for the people. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, like, what you want to get is you want to get someone that's kind of in the middle because you kind of want someone that's got enough kind of pizzazz and gung-ho and kind of bush savviness to be able to sort of be comfortable with their gear enough that they're okay giving a little bit extra, as in doing a little bit of extra towing or if we get to a creek and we need to think about navigating. So you don't want someone that's kind of at their out of their comfort zone. You want someone that's sort of done a bit of bushwalking before, but 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 not someone that is so kind of that, that wants to do 50Ks in a day and wants to climb 2,000 metres. And, and we'll be disappointed is, if they don't. <laughs> yeah. And be, yes, that's that's it. That is exactly it. It's you don't want someone that's got a that that has to get that that will feel like they have not had a good weekend if they don't reach the destination. And that's actually a really kind of um it's probably been a key part of this is finding the right people. And the interesting thing is that like you can have really, really good friends, but like not all of them are gonna have that personality type. In fact it's pretty common in the, in in the outdoor space to, you know, for for people to go and do outdoor sports because they're dealing with something else in their life and they want to get out bush and do these ripper of kind of mm. things to cope as a coping mechanism. And if you're trying to get them to change that, that that might not work. And and that's kind of that's not going to end good for kind of anyone. So. I think in terms of kind of approaching this stuff, it's been a little bit just kind of recognizing that, yeah, like not all of my previous bushwalking friends are going to want to do this stuff and, and that's okay. And, and I mean, that is sad in some sense that, you know, I have lost a connection with those people. But then at the same time, you know, did we really have a connection or was it just that we happened to go bush together? It's a really, it's a, it's a difficult one and it's a little bit of kind of, you know, letting, letting go of, that and kind of you know moving forward and and really like I, th- I think the people that have been like a hundred percent just on board and keen with this stuff are the people that just genuinely want to go bush and 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 hang out they're not they're fine if we don't get to wherever <laughs> they're pretty adaptable people that are just keen to be outdoors but they're fine with the journey being the the mm. trip not mm. the we must, we must, we must make it. You know, classic example, a couple of weeks ago, I um, organised a trip with some, um, some old Sydney friends. We, so Canberra is about three and a half-ish hours from, from, from Sydney um, and we kind of chose a spot that was about halfway so I was able to reconnect up with some Sydney friends and in my optimism I would mapped out this beautiful circuit that was probably about, 50 kilometers over the course of two days. Yeah, this will be great. We'll and manage so the it. Circuit. Did you you obviously looked on maps and charts and yeah. kind of took a took a hunch that okay, it's and maybe looked at guidebooks and just went, okay, it looks like that might be doable, you know, for that, yes. that length. And yeah. this is the kind of key bit that I'm still working out what 
the rules are. It's actually it's it's really helpful if you can read a topographic map to be able to figure this stuff out because you can look at the contours and you can get a sense of just how steep certain parts of the track are. You can also get a bit of a sense of the condition of the track based on, you know, is it a fire trail that's an orange solid line? This is using the topographic map conventions in Australia, but I'm sure in other parts of the world there'd be similar conventions. But, you know, a solid orange line, you can be pretty sure it's a major-ish fire trail and probably two-wheeled vehicles can get along it. Is it a large dashed line? Mm, It's four-wheel drivable, which means there's probably sections that are a bit rutted out, but with some ropes and stuff, we should be able to manage that. And then if it's a dashed orange line or a dashed black line, it's a little bit of a guessing game and how game are you to do it. So with those Mm. unknown dashed ones, you just got to go, okay, what's the pace going to be on, you know, on the good tracks? Well, we might be able to do three to four Ks an hour. Yep, that's probably fairly consistent. On the other ones, well, it might drop down to, you know, something a bit slower, like two Ks an hour. And then on the dashed ones, I've done the calculations afterwards and gone, we were going 500 metres an hour, literally. <laughs> that is how fast we, we were able to tackle it. And that's kind of what it what it was. And that's a really tricky thing then to, like, pace a trip because because of that unknown. I think I'm getting better at being able to read the topo maps and make a bit of a guess at what will work. And um, uh, I think the, the the rules are, you know, kind of be realistic with how far you're, you're going to be able to go. It's unlikely you'll ever go faster than 4Ks an hour and you may go 500 metres an hour sometimes. So make sure that you've, you know, got – enough of a buffer in place and enough water particularly if that's you went your pace ends up being being that slow um and then the second thing is looking at that elevation change because it's not necessarily the total elevation but it's exactly how steep that elevation is over a section so in my optimism and my wisdom i ended up taking us down a track that descended very very steeply um, and became actually really quite tricky because the section of track had been washed out, so it hadn't been graded any time recently. Um, and that was dropping in elevation. Um, I think it dropped 200 metres over a kilometre, and that was way too steep. That doesn't sound too bad, but that was just way, way too steep for mm-hmm. that track condition. But in order to get out again, we we're able to basically do a loop around and choose a different exit point that was 100 metres in elevation over a kilometre, and that was way easier with, wow. with the husky roping. So that's kind of the, 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 the kind of general rule set. Now there will be exceptions there depending on if you've got a really good track. If you've got bitumen track, then those numbers probably don't matter at all. You can probably do some really steep stuff. But when you've got kind of these more – Foresty trails, mm. yeah, like some of those, some of those rules are, are what I'm kind of working on. But it is a little bit of a read the map, take a little bit of a guess, and yeah, try to try to not lock in too many timeframes if it's one of those really really unknown tracks. And how, uh, if at all, are you documenting your your explorations? Because really, you're you're, you're pioneering uh, you're pioneering accessible bushwalking. And 
um, for others that want to follow in your your wheel tracks, uh, what <laughs> what um, how how do they know what you've already discovered, and um, how can they learn from that? Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you the ambition, and then I'll tell you the reality. So I do have a website pushwalk.com so like bushwalk.com but with a p pushwalk.com mm-hmm. i thought it was hilarious but you know there you go um my ambition is to be able to write a kind of track note description for each of these trips and provide a map um because i think that would actually be a really really helpful thing um i am really really behind with that but if you head to um pushwalk.com you can have a look at some of the trips that I've done, um, and uh, I do endeavour to update it with some of the more recent things because I think that's really helpful. Is if you know someone's done something, then you know it's possible. Of course, you know tracks change, mm. trees fall in fall over, tracks get washed out, conditions change really quickly. But if you've got at least a grand point, then it makes it a little bit easier. Um, on that website, I've also tried to list. Um, a few of the other things I've done. So gotten into a bit of scuba diving also in the last um, couple of years and that was sort of kicked off by um, oh, just an incredible guy. You will have to interview him. His name's Neil McClellan. He is a just amazing guy that's done a heap of um, scuba diving around Sydney and he's used the chair for over 30 years, so he's just an absolute rock star in this space. He um, said to me very early on, he said, hmm, you should take up scuba diving. It's it's like bushwalking underwater. And what he meant by that was that it's a way of exploring national parks, um, mm, cool. you know, underwater. And I'm very, very new to scuba diving. I'm still very much figuring out how it all kind of pieces together. But I've also tried to list on my um, website just a few of the shore diving trips um, around Sydney and just sort of talk through some of the access points because there are a few places that are, um, you know, pretty easy to get into as in there's ramps right down into the water which you can make use of, which obviously just gets a bit easier if you're trying to bring all your gear down as well. We need to create a platform, Helen, to um, to document the world's accessible, you know, uh, outdoor adventures. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I I think there's a lot of potential there. Yeah, because if you know someone's done it, it it just helps. Because here's the thing: I, I know of a dozen accessible hand cycle adventures. Uh, you know, lo- in my local area. Um, you know, and and you know, some other guy, you know, Quinn and Smith and Monica, he'll know a dozen in his area. And you know, if we could combine all those and in, in, in a resource. Man, it'd be a credible, credible amount of knowledge. It would, uh, it would surely help um, help increase uh, accessibility in the outdoors. For sure, and and I think the main thing about that is that I mean, I love traveling to be able to spend time in amazing outdoor places and experience another culture through their connection with the outdoors and their natural environment and. Uh, like all of my travel is always based around kind of yeah that that element and so to be able to kind of you know go somewhere and have at least a starting point for a bunch of different trips that mm. that you could do in that area 
And, you know, and I don't mean trips that are kind of organized by a, a really like rigid travel company. That's not really kind of my thing. I love exploring something under my own steam and taking, yeah, traveling with people that I, that I share, you know, the same values with and, and have a passion for exploring. Um, but, but in order to do that, you just need, you need the information about where to, where to start. You don't need the full, you know, detailed every kind of little bit, but you need, you certainly need that sort of starting point. And, you know, I would love someone to be able to come to Australia and say, hey, I can spend two weeks exploring 10 different national parks and these are some of the really cool trips I can go and do. I see a book in your future, Helen. I see a book. Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so tell me, um, you know, true to your statement at the beginning about you just the way people would describe you as just overly optimistic, are there, are there anything, is there anything in all these travels that, that frustrates you that you haven't quite been able to solve? Is there anything that occurs again and again that you have found um, solutions for? How do you manage? Uh, how do you manage going to the toilet in the bush? Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's what I was kind of thinking of when you when you asked that question. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, not unlike pretty much everyone that has spinal cord injury, there's uh, this massive kind of learning curve in terms of managing your bladder. I, for really, I would say only this year have I finally kind of gotten over the hump of just recurring urinary tract infections and being able to start to kind of reduce the amount of equipment that I that I use. Um, one of the things that's been so helpful for me, and I'm not a medical doctor. I am a doctor, but, you know, a doctor of rats is probably not the right person to tell you what's up to take. Um, I have found a um, medication's the right word. Just a, 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 a herbal tablet called D-Manos, a really effective tool against managing urinary tract infections. So I take a couple of those each day and the number of urinary tract infections I've had has just has just it, it is so much less than what I had before and with having a more reliable bladder it just means that you can start kind of just working on all the other elements of, of life I think one of the major things that has kind of helped me manage my bladder in the kind of bushwalking and camping world is that um, pretty much from the word go when I was learning how to self-catheterize in hospital, I learned and was taught and I learned how to do it from sitting within my chair, which um, initially sounds a bit kind of odd and, you know, how does that work and is it still hygienic? But actually learning how to do it without needing a toilet or a bathroom or an accessible bathroom and you can just have a bottle to wee into means that you can basically go to the toilet anywhere. And that kind of it just makes life so much easier if you're not constantly having to have that radar on where's the nearest accessible bathroom. 
Um, and this was something, I mean, it's so funny how like your experience is really warped by your own kind of perception because I just assumed that everyone catheterized sitting in their chair, like why wouldn't you? Why would you transfer onto a toilet? It's extra, it takes longer, it's more effort. Um, but actually I've kind of discovered, I guess, that that's actually not necessarily the norm or very common and it kind of is yeah like a bit of a an unusual thing to be able to just we anywhere but I think kind of because I learned super early on that it's a really simple thing just to carry a spare bottle with you and just get into the habit of having that has made it yeah super easy to adapt and, and go to the bush so I think kind of I guess the things that I do to to manage everything is um and, I, and I'm still learning like I, I'd say I don't have this sort of at all damn pat yet but um I always yeah so I make sure that I that I use that demanos that's really really helpful for me um I make sure that I just I sort of when I go when I go bushwalking I kind of have the well what's the worst case scenario well worst case scenario is that your bladder just completely gives up so you want to make sure you've got enough spare just a spare at least one spare pair of pants and a spare cushion cover to kind of cope with that and I usually carry like a light um like a light travel towel and if you've got spares you can deal with stuff um when I've been traveling overseas um I found that just using a temporary indwelling catheter is a really um helpful way just to kind of just to sort of like just make just to take out that kind of element of you know needing to think about managing your self catheters as in worrying about having enough of them or making sure they're sterile and, and this sort of stuff having a indwelling catheter just makes traveling in a traveling context it actually kind of just frees up mental space a little bit to really you know focus on other things that are happening the advantage of having well so indwelling catheter I would usually just have a little tap on the end of it which means that your bladder retains you know the normal function of filling up and emptying but sometimes if my bladder as it has done goes totally crazy um I'll just carry a spare um and this is you know this is in the context of traveling several weeks away from home I'll just carry a spare um leg bag as well so the kind of backup is you know all being well bladder behaves itself excellent self catheters if you're traveling you know sticking in a dwelling catheter if bladder behaves great you know what's the worst case scenario bladder just totally gives up can't hold anything well the backup is you know put a leg bag mm. onto the indwelling catheter you've got free flow and and it's not you know it's not a it's not the best solution but you know what in the context of traveling sometimes not the best solution is a fantastic solution and it works and that's all it kind of needs to so I still, I think kind of when I travel, I just try to kind of go best case scenario through to like worst case scenario, make sure I've got enough kind of backups in place so that if shit is a fan, you can kind of deal with it rather than having to, you know, I like that uh, framing that, you know, best case, worst case scenario, and then just, just planning, having, having a plan in place. I think that's yep. I think that's great. I like those yep. I like those yep. tips around <clears throat> you know, managing your, your bladder, it's a big one. Um what does the future hold 
for you, Helen. Obviously, you've you've moved to uh, to a resident new town, and uh, I see plenty of bushwalking still in your future. What what else have you got in mind? Yeah, um, that's a that's a good question. I, to be honest, I'm kind of just getting to the end of this year and um, taking a, doing a bit of a stock take, really, because uh, it's been a big year. You know, moving down and moving into you know new share house and um you know learning learning the ropes down here um i think kind of on the immediate horizon i i try to usually do something kind of fun around the um australia day long weekend which is sort of the i guess i don't know do you call it the anniversary of your accident it's a bit of a weird kind of it's a weird time so i usually try to try to organize a bit of a fun trip so last year's Australia Day long weekend trip was the pack rafting one that I that I talked about earlier, and um, I've got a few people lined up for, for that trip. So I'm not sure what it is at the moment, but I hope it involves, you know, all the good things, which is you know, good people, some water, some time in the bush, a fire, I did a campfire, um, and you know, it's hopefully some cooking marshmallows and having some port around the campfire. It's always pretty good. So I think that's that's my immediate future. But um but I, I I mean I would be interested in thinking about a bit of a a bit of a longer epic um where where we we take um you know a couple of couple of different folk and, and head out and do a longer wilderness trip, I'd really be up for that. It'll take some planning, but, um, yeah, I think that'd be fun. I really do hope you you update uh, update your website with some more of these activities because I'll, be, uh, I'll be looking with interest <laughs> and I'm sure others listening will as well. It's been so Wicked. awesome speaking with you. Um, yeah, you, you had some reservations about being, being labelled an adaptifier, but uh, – in my mind, you're you're certainly pioneering in the space, and that is, uh, is exactly what I classify an adaptifier. So, um, yeah, it's nice to have you uh, have you on the show, and um, yeah, look forward to maybe one of these long adventures with you one day. Yeah, wicked! And big shout out to you and your team for doing all the stuff that you've done so far. It's just amazing how far things have come since we um since I first connected with you. I think the podcast is just such an awesome way of being able to connect, um, you know, many different people across across the world. And we've got such an awesome community. I mean, the the best example is the fact that you'd never met me. We, we knew each other through a mutual friend, but you lent me your car for a week without even meeting me. So the fact that we have this awesome community of people that are willing to share and you're facilitating that through Adaptify and bringing us together is is an awesome thing. And yeah, I'm just super excited to see yeah where where you guys go from here. Awesome, thanks so much, Helen. Lovely of you to say. Uh, look, enjoy. We're we're ten days out from Christmas, so um, happy holidays, and uh, look forward to catching up with you in the new year. Wicked. Have an awesome Christmas too. See ya. See ya. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and meeting today's Adaptifier. To learn more about Adaptify and the products we have in development, products that will increase freedom for wheelchair users, 
go to adaptdefy.com. That's A-D-A-P-T-D-E-F-Y.com. We're also on all the major social media platforms at Adaptify. Follow us there for more behind the scenes looks and more up-to-date information on product releases. Hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look forward to catching you next time.